section on persecution, and we had looked at some of the different Roman emperors and the different eras that took place of persecution in the early church until that major persecution stopped in the early 300s. And then we looked at some of the responses to persecution that the churches had, and we saw that there was at times divisions and controversies concerning how to handle uh, persecution and how to handle those who had lapsed and if we are to let them back in the church or not and when we should let them back in the church. And we saw the Novation controversy and the Donatist controversy. So that was all really, really important. And so that's the first few centuries, just some of the things that occurred in the Roman Empire with persecution. But now we're moving on to Lesson 6, and what we're going to look at now is the apologists. And basically, this will be uh, 2nd century. Uh, We'll look at someone whose writings went a little bit into the 3rd century, but this is basically 2nd century early church fathers. Now, if you remember before, we looked at the apostolic fathers, which covered about AD 95 to 145. Now we're looking at, just after that, ministries that took place in the second century. And these men who were part of these ministries are what we know as the apologists. Now, the word apologist or or, uh, apologetics, we get from the Greek word apologia, which simply means a speech for the defense. And when we talk about apologetics, we're talking about to make a defense and we're talking about apologists, apologetics in the church. We're talking about defending the Christian faith. The word apologia was used by Socrates and Plato when giving a defense for their life and philosophy. So it's not like it was just Christians using that word. But when we talk about Christian apologetics, we're talking about defending the church from attacks And in the second century, we're talking about defending the church from attacks that would come from the Jews and also from the different pagans. And as they would defend the church, they would also expose the falsehoods of other religions as well. And so by doing that, they were simply following through with what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 15. And here's what he wrote. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts... And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And so each of us as individual Christians, whether if it's our children asking us questions or if it's an unbeliever that we know asking us questions, we want to be able to give them the answer that they need to hear and with the right attitude as well. And so the church for 2,000 years, has been doing this very thing. We've been responding to attacks, defending the church, and then also attacking falsehoods and bringing down every lofty thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God in Christ, as Paul writes about. So these ministries of the apologists, they defended the church against accusations from the Romans. And we saw, remember, if you remember that section we did on persecution, we talked about, uh, talked about a man by the name of Celsus, who in the second century wrote a horrible book against Christians and against the faith. Well, they would defend the church against these attacks from the Romans. They would also clarify misunderstandings and affirm the truths that Christians believed. And, you know, when you think about our own day, let's say in America, 
most attacks that we get comes from the secular world. You know, you might think of apologists that are involved. Let's think about like Answers in Genesis, Ken Ham, and other scientists who are Christians. They will oftentimes defend the church and attack uh, the theory of evolution and the theory that the earth is very old, that's millions of years old. We, we might think of that. Um, but, you know, when, when it comes to these attacks against the Christian church, this is nothing new. Uh, when you look throughout church history, you'll find false worldview after false worldview exalt itself against the church, and eventually they're always defeated. And eventually, the secular humanism that surrounds us will eventually be defeated. I don't know how. I don't know if the Lord Jesus won't come back for centuries, and if, if it might be defeated then, or just when the Lord Jesus comes back. But either way, all these false views that are around us today will eventually be defeated. Just like these ones that the apologists in the second century were dealing with, we never hear of them anymore. Uh, such will be the same today. So there, we never have to think, like for example, uh, Bill Nye. How many of you are familiar with Bill Nye, right? So when you were little, you saw maybe on the TV, Bill Nye, the science guy. And uh, it turns out the man is a complete raving secularist who's a complete political leftist and is controlled a lot of times by politics. You know, it's one of those things where the, he wants the science to support his politics. But, you know, one of the things that he said to Ken Ham one time is he said, I think you're afraid. And basically he's saying you're afraid that people are coming to understand evolution in millions of years and there's not going to be any Christians left anymore. But that's just completely ridiculous. This is just another false worldview that's raising itself up that will eventually be defeated. And so the, the, the false worldviews that these men were dealing with, we don't really know of them today, but it was no different in their day with the pagans attacking the church and so forth. So it's important to keep that in mind. And we might think of some of the things that they were battling with as so foolish, and it's true, but if you put yourself in their context, that's where the battle was raging hot with those philosophical worldviews that they were dealing with at that time. If you remember it also, when we dealt with the Roman background, I talked about some of the different philosophies and philosophers that existed and some of the beliefs at that time, just to kind of give us a background with what the church would have to deal with. Now, some of the apologists uh, addressed the philosophical thinking of the age, and oftentimes these apologists, before they were Christians, were philosophers, but were converted to Christ, and they were very educated men, very literary, but now they used those gifts to defend the church against these different philosophies. Now, the first one we're going to look at is a man by the name of Justin Martyr. Now, when it comes to the church fathers who were apologists, Justin Martyr is the most well-known. He's known as, you know, people might think of him as the greatest of the apologists, but whatever the case, he's the most well-known of the apologists in the early church. He was born probably around 100 or 110 AD, so we're talking shortly after the death of John the Apostle, and he would die around 165. And Justin Martyr, just so you know, Martyr obviously is not his last name. He gets the name Justin Martyr because he died as a martyr. He's also known as Justin the Philosopher. Now, he was born in Samaria, and he was educated in the Greek style. He was a heathen, raised in a, raised in a non-Christian home, and he was very familiar with the different Greek philosophical systems. He studied with a peripatetic philosopher, and what that is is that someone who would collect disciples 
and walk from place to place. Uh, Peripateo simply means to walk. So a peripatetic philosopher was someone who had his band of disciples. He would travel from place to place and teach. And his disciples would get their money by begging. And they would also, you know, support the philosopher in that way. And they were happy just to be able to travel with him to hear his teaching. And so that's how Justin learned so much. He traveled with one of those traveling philosophers. Justin studied Stoicism. I don't know if you probably remember that, but we talked about that in the, when we gave the Roman background earlier. He studied Plato and Pythagoras. Those were well-known philosophers. He was very well-trained, and he found what he was looking for in the philosophy of Plato and Platonism, and he was very content in it. But as he saw Christians so willingly and boldly dying for the faith as martyrs, that began to stir him up a bit. But one day, his faith in Platonism changed when he encountered an elderly Christian while walking on the seashore by Ephesus. He encounters this elderly man, and his faith in Platonism was shaken as this man pointed him to the Old Testament prophets and pointed him to the Lord Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of of the Old Testament. Justin never saw the man again, but he was converted to Christ as a result of that conversation. Justin never held a church office. He was never a pastor or a presbyter in a local church, uh, but he devoted himself to the defense of the Christian faith. He also never stayed in one place. So a lot of times when we think of somebody, I think of Clement of Rome who was at Rome for a time. You might think of Ignatius of Antioch. It's never Justin of somewhere. He was a traveler uh, in his ministry in the apologetics. And one can read of the testimony of his conversion in his writings. There's also a testimony of his martyrdom that one can read of as well, but we're not going to go through that here together. He had different writings. We have a big collection of them, and it's quite lengthy. I mean, you can read through them, and we have quite a bit of Justin's teaching. But let me just name them for you here. We have his first apology, which was dedicated to the emperor Ant- Antonius Pius. And oftentimes apologists did that. They wrote their apologies, and they would write them specifically to the emperor to help him to understand uh, the true nature of who Christians really were and understand truths of the faith to clear up any misunderstandings. His second apology, which is a continuation of the first, he addressed to the Roman Senate for that same purpose. He also has a very well-known writing known as his Dialogue with Trifo, a Jew, in which Justin displays a great knowledge of the Old Testament and how Christ fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. And it's really interesting. It's actually 142 chapters. It's it's lengthy, uh, but he shows how Christ relates to the Father and, again, how the Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. Some other writings, his hortatory address to the Greeks, his discourse to the Greeks. He writes on the sole government of God, and we have fragments on the resurrection that he writes about and some other fragments as well. So we have more writings of him than any of the other church fathers that we've gone through so far, so we have quite a bit. Now, there's a couple things I want to talk about concerning Justin. Number one, Justin and philosophy, his approach. Now, remember, he was a philosopher before he was a Christian. He was a pagan philosopher. After his conversion and throughout his ministry, Justin continued to wear the pallium, which was the cloak of a philosopher. It was a distinct dress. If you wore it, everybody knew 
that's one of the philosophers. Well, you might think that after his conversion that he takes it off and doesn't wear it again. He continues to wear it throughout his Christian walk and throughout his ministry. And what he was doing is he was presenting Christianity as the true philosophy as opposed to all of the other philosophies. Now, he had specific beliefs, though, about the philosophers that were a bit controversial. Basically, what he believed is the pagan philosophers had a lot of truths that are very valuable for us to know, but they didn't have the whole truth which Christianity brings us. And so he looked at the philosophers as having a lot of valuable knowledge, but there were certain points that they didn't know. Because of that, they were lost, and they needed to have the true philosophy, which is Christianity. Whereas a man like Tertullian, who was another church father who we'll look at eventually, he's famous for the phrase, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? He had a much more negative view, you would say, of the Greek philosophers as just being completely corrupt, whereas Justin didn't look at them in that way. He would look at them and glean things from them that he thought were accurate, but yet he knew that they were off because they didn't have the scriptures. Starting with Justin, we do see Greek philosophical categories of thought in Christian writing because he was so influenced by the philosophers. And there again, we have to ask the question, uh, as the gospel goes out into the world, to different countries and to different cultures, their questions need to be answered in the language that they're asking, right? Um, so the question comes up at this time, can you use non-biblical words to explain answers to their questions so that you can answer them accurately? In other words, let me put it this way. There are some Christians who believe you should only use biblical terminology in your teaching and your apologetics. But the question comes up then, can you use terminology that is not in Scripture if you're accurately describing teaching in the Bible? So like, for example, the word Trinity. Okay, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. But the word Trinity accurately describes truth in the Bible. God is one being who exists in three persons. Or the term incarnation, that does not appear in Scripture. But it's describing how God took on flesh. So can you use that kind of term? I have absolutely no problem with that, as long as you're accurately uh, presenting teaching in Scripture so that the people can understand it. And so that's kind of where the, the question, though, comes in is how far can you go with this? And that's kind of where this was. For just How far do you go in using some of these Greek philo philosophical categories in describing biblical truth? That's where the controversy comes in. We, I think there's two imbalances. Number one, you don't want to demand the culture leaves all their ways of thinking. You can use those things to describe biblical truth to them accurately. But also, you don't want to have cultural accommodation where you lose biblical truth as you're doing that. So, for example, I heard the example that James White used of, you know, if you're in India and you're a missionary there and you're teaching and you're trying to get the people to understand, you don't want to turn Jesus into an a Indian guru a pagan guru of some kind to get them. Do you understand what I mean? So, and, and that can happen where the people have a complete misunderstanding of who Jesus is because you're just completely giving into their culture and you're accommodating biblical truth to that too much. So there is that balance there. Justin believed that Christianity was the fulfillment of Greek philosophy. Again, whereas, you know, a man like Tertullian would just know, 
you, you just put Greek philosophy away, it's just completely corrupt. And again, the philosophers only saw some truths. Scripture gives the whole picture. That's what Justin believed. So that's some things concerning Justin and philosophy. Secondly, looks like Mike's turning in his Bible. Did you want to read a verse for us, Mike? No, I, I was thinking about Paul and uh, just the thing about, remember, he quotes, he quotes their own poets, right? And he says, hey, what has your own poets said? You know, they're all a bunch of lazy bucks, those kind of things. And then he, he addresses the poet philosophers as philosophers, right? So um, I, I think there's teachings very accurate. There's a balance there. It has to be biblical in that you can't completely Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where, I mean, even those in, you know, British missionaries and American missionaries, say in the 1800s, when they go to a culture, a lot of times they would take on the dress of the culture, right? Uh, they didn't always do that either, which is fine. I don't think you have to do that. But, you know, nevertheless, you don't want to go there and, and, and act as if you have to turn these people into British people, you know, in order to be Christians, right? Um, yeah. Drums. They were using some drums, but not like we understand, like drum drums, yeah. proper gold music. But they do the beat and stuff. We had one of those little things, you know, behind the thing they did a keypad with grooves before. And so, again, that's just another example, right? We would be totally opposed to that, and then we go to Africa and certain other countries. Um, as long as it's not unholy, it's not a problem. Um, you know, you want to use that for the Lord or something. Right, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, if you have the music that's the style of the culture, that's going to, I think, edify them more. And then if it's a rebellious kind of music, which different cultures have, you want to purge that out. You know, that's, that's exactly what Mike is saying. I mean, here, if you look at our music, it's a different style than in Africa. Then you have good music and bad music, so we, we don't want the bad music of the, you want the good music. But that's, yeah, that's really important, and that's, that's just such a good point. I think that's what Justin was really trying to do it. I think that he, he did a really good job of it, I think, but we'll, we'll look at some things where he was slightly off on uh, because of his philosophical influences. Then, Justin and theology, that's the second point I want to bring up here. I want to talk a little bit about his theological teaching. It seems clear that Justin did not have a complete New Testament canon with him. And it seems very possible that he did not have the writings of Paul. He never one time quotes Paul through all of his writings that we have. At times, he seems to be actually more influenced by Plato than Paul in his teaching. And so you stop and you think of it. I mean, we want to be a bit humble here and think, if you're in his situation and you don't have any of the writings of Paul, you're going to have some gaps in your theological teaching, right? And so what are you going to fill those gaps with? what you already know, I mean, what you already have, and what he had is philosophic, Greek philosophical training. And so he'll, he'll fill in those gaps with that at times. And his, his theology was deeply influenced by Greek philosophy. 
We do not know exactly who Justin's influences were regarding teaching on salvation, but at times he seems to be very legal and works-oriented, yet because he was not, this was not a big area in which he was challenged, it is not a big area of his discussion in his uh, apologetical writings. He does affirm monotheism and that there is one truth and that Jesus is the Son of God and he affirms the incarnation. He writes about a few different theological points that I want to bring up here. And I'll just read to you just a couple of them. Uh, he, he's very clear about the Trinity. He talks about giving glory to the Father through the name of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And what I want to do here is I want to just read a passage for you where he writes about a worship of Christians as they're gathered together on the Lord's Day. So let me just read that here for you. And we afterwards continually remind each other of these things, and the wealthy among us help the needy. And we always keep together, and for all things wherewith we are supplied, we bless the Maker of all through his Son, Jesus Christ, and through the Holy Ghost. And on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together into one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read, as long as time permits. Then, when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray, and, as we before said, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought, and the president in like manner offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability. And the people assent, saying, Amen. And there is a distribution to each, and a participation of that over which thanks have been given, and to those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons. So in other words, he's talking about the Lord's Supper and those that are not there, the sick, the deacons take the, the bread and the wine to them. And they who are well-to-do and willing give what each thinks fit. And what is collected is deposited with the president who succours the orphans and widows and those who through sickness or any other cause are in want and those who are in bonds and the strangers sojourning among us and in a word takes care of all who are in need. But Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly, because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world, and Jesus Christ our Savior on the same day rose from the dead. For he was crucified on the day before the, of Saturn, Saturday. So him and Mike are going to have to get into a debate about the, the day that happened. But on, and on the day after that of Saturn, which is the day of the sun, having appeared to his apostles and disciples, he taught them these things, which we have submitted to you also for your consideration. So, again, he talks about how Christians met on the first day of the week. This is, this is not something that began at the time of Constantine, as some say, as some Sabbath, Christian Sabbatarians would say. This is something that was practiced way before that. And uh, we even see it in the New Testament, I would argue. But you also see some of the practices that they had there on the Lord's Day as they gathered together. Now, I want to read to you one other thing. One of the things he writes about the Lord's Supper and one of the things that he writes about baptism. So let me read this concerning the Lord's Supper. And this food is called among us the Eucharist, which simply means giving of thanks, of which no one is allowed to partake, but the man who believes that the things which we teach are true and who has been washed with the washing that is for the remission of sins and unto regeneration and who is so living as Christ has enjoined. So no, no one can take the Lord's Supper unless they're a believer. 
Uh, that's what he's saying. So the whole idea, the liberal idea today of open communion, anyone can take it, anyone who's coming simply wasn't the practice. For not as common bread and common drink, now, now think about this, uh, really pay attention here. For not as common bread and common drink do we receive these, but in like manner as Jesus Christ our Savior, having been made flesh by the word of God, had both flesh and blood for our salvation. So likewise have we been taught that the food which is blessed by the prayer of his word and from which our blood and flesh by transmutation are nourished is the flesh and blood that Jesus who was made flesh. Now here's the thing. That passage right there is used by Roman Catholics, by Lutherans, and by Calvinists to promote their different views on the Lord's Supper. Roman Catholics believe, remember, the bread and the wine actually turns into the literal flesh and blood of Christ. Luther and the Lutherans believe that the flesh and the blood are contained in, within, and about the, the, the bread and the wine. That's a whole different thing. We'll get into that later. And the Calvinists believe that there was no physical presence, but simply a spiritual presence. The thing is, is the passage, I believe, is too short and vague to really come up with an exact thing. I don't believe Justin was teaching trans, transubstantiation as the Roman Catholic Church teaches, because the philosophical categories for that had not been developed yet. Um, and in fact, our Lord Jesus uses similar wording in the New Testament concerning this is my body, this is my blood. So we can't take that passage and completely abuse that. In the same way, I'd be careful in doing this uh, with, with Justin Martyr. So don't know exactly what Justin's view was concerning spiritual presence and so forth, but I would just be careful. This, this is one passage that definitely can be, be abused. Yeah, he, uh, from which our blood and flesh by transmutation are nourished. So I think he's talking about, you know, in our body what it's doing. Yeah. Now, one more thing uh, about baptism. And this, here we have a passage where um, it's questionable, did Justin believe in baptismal regeneration? Where you go into the water and in the water you are regenerated. Uh, because as, as we'll see here, Justin, he says something very good about faith, and I'm going to quote that in a little bit here, but he did not have what we would say a very biblical understanding of God's sovereignty in salvation and of God's sovereign working in regeneration, and he went because of his views, his philosophical views that he was influenced by. Uh, some believe he's not talking here about baptismal regeneration, but that he's talking about baptism being a symbol of regeneration. Uh, it seems to me, though, that you could make a strong argument that he was teaching baptismal regeneration. But nevertheless, for surely by the third century, when you get to Cyprian, who I mentioned last time, by that time you definitely have baptismal regeneration being taught. But here, let me just read Justin for you. I will also relate the manner in which we dedicated ourselves to God when we had been made new through Christ, lest, if we omit this, we seem to be unfair in the explanation we are making. As many as are persuaded and believe that what we teach and say is true and undertake to be able to live accordingly are instructed to pray and to entreat God with fasting for the remission of their sins that are past, we praying and fasting with them. Then they are brought by us where there is water and are regenerated in the same manner in which we were ourselves regenerated. For in the name of God, the Father and Lord of the universe, and of our Savior Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit, 
They then received the washing with water. For Christ also said, Except ye be born again, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, that it is impossible for those who have once been born to enter into their mother's wombs is manifest to all. And how those who have sinned and repent shall escape their sins is declared by Isaiah the prophet. And he goes on to quote Isaiah, how wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings, and so forth. And for this right, we have learned from the apostles this reason. Since at our birth we were born without our own knowledge or choice by our parents coming together and were brought up in bad habits and wicked training, in order that we may not remain the children of necessity and of ignorance, but may become the children of choice and knowledge, and may obtain in the water the remission of sins formerly committed, there is pronounced over him who chooses to be born again and has repented of his sins the name of God the Father and Lord of the universe, he who leads to the laver, the person that is to be washed, calling him by his name alone. For no one can utter the name of the ineffable God. And if anyone dare to say that there is a name, he raves with a hopeless madness. So anyway, that's some of his writing on baptism. Again, it's kind of general. It doesn't go into a lot of detail defending baptismal regeneration, but it's very possible that he had a misunderstanding and bad teaching when it comes to that. Is someone going to say something? Yeah, and there's, and there's something where, I mean, a person knows how. It's interesting because you have the teaching and then you have the person who holds to the teaching. So it's kind of like, like um, you know, when you stop and think about it, you're, you're, when you believe in baptismal regeneration, in many ways you're adding, I would say you are adding a work to salvation. So it is a heretical teaching. Then at the same time, can someone be regenerated? They experience conversion and they're they don't understand. They're confused. They don't understand that you actually weren't regenerated when you were put in the water. You know, is that a possibility? You know, and, and also, you know, like some people believe that they believed and then they were regenerated. They don't understand that they were actually regenerated first and then they believe. But this does go a step further in that you are actually adding a work, unlike a typical Arminian who, who affirms justification by faith alone. This goes a step further. But Anyway, those things we leave to the Lord, and, uh, but this is just going through the history uh, concerning Justin. So I just wanted to mention some of that. Um, the teaching about hell, he writes in his first apology, section 12, he speaks of the everlasting punishment of fire. And then section 8, he says, upon the wicked... In the same bodies united again to their spirits, which are now to undergo everlasting punishment. And not only, as Plato said, for a period of a thousand years. So in other words, what's he affirming? A literal burning hell that lasts forever, not just for a period of time. And so he's, he writes about hell a lot. So I just wanted to you know, let that there because there are some who teach that uh, hell is only for a certain period of time. 
And uh, some of those people who teach that look to Justin and the early church fathers and say it's because they were influenced by Greek philosophy. But nevertheless, here, Justin uh, says this according to Scripture as against Plato's philosophy. So uh, you can, I, I would say that what Justin is teaching is exactly what Scripture says. You can't get around it. That scripture teaches that hell, the lake of fire, will last forever. Uh, Section 28, just because of our modern day, I won't read it, but he condemns sodomy in his first apology. So again, that's completely uh, against what the apostate churches of our day are teaching concerning sodomy. So it's not as if we are called for affirming that sodomy is a sin. Uh, This is something that was believed since the very beginning by every single Christian and every single Jew. Uh, Number four point is he speaks of exposing children, which, again, is practice of the Romans where they didn't want a child, so they would go set that child outside for someone to pick up or eventually they would die. But he says this, We fear to expose children, lest some of them be not picked up but die, and we become murderers. So that was very important. Then he says, But whether we marry, it is only that we may bring up children or whether we decline marriage, we live continently. So he speaks of living in a pure way, but also he and the other church fathers, and we'll maybe look at this later, affirm very clearly that one of the main purposes of marriage was to have children. And um, in fact, at times maybe they take it a bit too far. They'd say like some of them would go too far and say the only purpose of getting married was to have children. Uh, We'll look at that later. But in our modern day, oftentimes, Bible-believing Christians such as ourselves or Protestants, you might say as well, will view the issue of birth control or having children or not as being a Roman Catholic issue, not a Protestant issue. They'll say, you know, well, Protestants have no problem with this, but Roman Catholics just uh, refuse to, you know, they teach officially that their people are not to use forms of birth control. But actually, historically, that was not the case. This was not simply a Roman Catholic issue. All the early church fathers, and if you look at the first Protestants of the Protestant Reformation, all would agree with the Roman Catholic Church's view today. So it's actually not the Roman Catholic Church that is unbiblical or unhistorical concerning this issue. It's actually a lot of modern Protestants, if you're honest, with with the history and so forth there. So we'll look at that a little bit more later, but just want to say Justin mentioned that. Then he says this concerning faith in his dialogue with Trifo. He says the Christians are purified by faith through the blood of Christ and through his death who died for this very reason. It's it's an excellent statement on faith. You wonder, did he have contradictions in his theology? Or would he somehow say, yes, faith, and because of faith we go into the waters to be regenerated. I I don't know, but either way, you you see some of this in his teaching. Okay, and then Justin and free will. (laughs) This is kind of interesting because he makes statements about free will that you don't see any other church father up to this point making. And we, we quoted some of the church fathers before showing, you know, what they believed about God's sovereignty in salvation. Uh, But now when you get to Justin, again, you're dealing with someone who didn't have Paul's writings. You're dealing with someone who uh, was, or he probably didn't have Paul's writings, and who's very much influenced by Greek philosophy in the Greco-Roman culture, which very much taught uh, human free will. 
And so again, what if you don't have Paul's writings, what are you going to replace that with? Well, it's with what you already know. So let me just quote to you some things. He says in, in his writing, The Government of God, to that make choice of the better things according to the free will placed in man. And then in his first apology, section 43, he's talking about fate. And I would say he's dealing with something a little different there than what, say, a lot of Christians would teach about God's sovereignty and his, his sovereign providential plan. You know, he may be dealing with fate concerning the Gnostics and fate concerning uh, the pagans of his time. But nevertheless, here's what he says. And again, unless the human race have the power of avoiding evil and choosing good by free choice, they are not accountable for their actions of whatever kind they be. But that it is by free choice, they both walk uprightly and stumble, we thus demonstrate. And then he says, now, if it had been fated, if it's by fate, that we were to be either good or bad, he could never have been made capable of both the opposites nor of so many transitions. And so the point is, is, if it's by faith, how can we be held accountable for our actions? And he's saying it has to be by free will. It has to be by free choice. That way we'd be held accountable. Again, seems to be an influence from Plato, which wouldn't surprise us at that point. And then finally, one last thing he says about purity, which I thought is important in his first apology section 15. It's just a good testimony of Christians in his time. For not only he who in act commits adultery is rejected by God, by him, but also he who desires to commit adultery, since not only our works, but also our thoughts are open before God. And many, both men and women, who have been Christ's disciples from childhood, remain pure at the age of 60 or 70 years. And I boast that I could produce such from every race of men. So... Again, it's just a good testimony of how Christians in his day were just being faithful to the biblical teaching and principles in a society that was just so wicked and so immoral when you think of the Roman society at that time. Eventually, Justin was executed by decapitation by the Roman authorities, and thus the name Justin Martyr. So before moving on, any questions, any last comments as we'll be finished with? Justin Martyr. Okay, we're almost done here today, but let me just uh, just mention a few others. We have five other apologists that I will mention. We're not going to spend a lot of time on them. We have Aristides. He was a converted philosopher who dedicated an apology to the emperor Antonius Pius in AD 140. He was from Athens. And then you have Athenagoras. He was also from Athens. He's said to have been one of the clearest and most persuasive of the apologists. In about A.D. 177, he addressed his intercession on behalf of the Christians to Emperor Marcus Aurelius and his son Commodus. He labored to disprove accusations of atheism, cannibalism, and incest among the Christians, as they were often accused of those things. Then number three... Theophilus of Antioch. He was converted to Christ through the study of Scripture. He was the Bishop of Antioch, again, very important church in the New Testament, Bishop of Antioch, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius. Then this is later, second century. He died around A.D. 181, shortly after writing his famous apology to a pagan friend, showing him that idolatry is false and Christianity is true, as well as the fact that Christians are virtuous, law-abiding citizens. 
He also had the view, like Tertullian, that what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? He had a very negative attitude toward Greek philosophy. He believed that scripture already contained what all men needed to know, and he accused Plato of having stole his best ideas from the Old Testament prophets and believed the writings of Plato and Socrates were detractions from God's truth. So there's the difference. Justin believed they had a lot of good points about him, and they just didn't have the whole that they needed to be guided in the truth, whereas someone like Theophilus of Antioch believed, no, these were just complete detractions from God's word. He was the first to use the term triad in reference to the nature of God, but his usage suggests that it was not a new or novel term at the time that he used it around A.D. 160. So this is not the Latin trinitus where we get trinity from, but nevertheless, it's a word he's using to describe three in one concerning the nature of God. And then we have, finally, uh, excuse me, Munutius Felix, he wrote in Latin, not in Greek, which was rare. Usually the apologists wrote in Greek, probably of North African descent. His famous apology, Octavius, was written probably about AD 230, sets out the arguments between Christians and pagans in the form of a dialogue and demonstrates that the Christian faith is superior to pagan idolatry. And then finally, Melito of Sardis. We're going to stop as I looked at the clock because we're out of time. But Lord willing, next time we'll look at Melito of Sardis and then we'll end the section concerning the apologists and then we'll move on from there. Any last questions or comments? Howard, would you close us in prayer? Oh, Lord, we just thank you again for your, for calling us and for your, what you're doing in us and blessing our work. Lord, help us to know that you're attracted to us, you're so close to our heart, you know that, and help us to see in that you are all there in control, and also